Hello, I'm Hal Lublin. And I'm Mark Gagliardi. Since the dawn of humanity, one issue has gone unsettled. With the fate of the world in the balance, we're here to settle once and for all. Best classic cult film. That's right. Don't worry, everyone. We got this. Podcasts should have a theme song. Podcasts should not have a theme song. Yes, they should. No, they shouldn't. They sound good. Yeah, but people are just going to skip past it. Hmm. You know what? You're right. We got this. Mark, I love the internet. <laughs> I'm going to tell you why. Why do you? Lo- oh, I know why you love the internet, but why? Why today? Because it's a magical place where yes. connections happen and sure. people come together, and podcasts cross over. Podcasts much larger than ours who happen to be in our network with us. Oh, I love Just it when random, that happens. Yeah, a random Twitter it's encounter like- <laughs> over who knows what. It's like Maury having The Simpsons on. Exactly. <laughs> the Simpsons are on Maury. We're so excited. In this case, uh, our Simpsons uh, come in the form of Dan McCoy from Flophouse. Right. Welcome, what is up, Dan? Hello. Now, have you seen numbers on this? I mean, I feel like the Max Fun numbers are like Netflix. Like, no one really knows what's going on. <laughs> yeah, we're, I, I assume we're just under Black Mirror. Uh-huh. And you're just ahead of House of Cards, but early House of Cards. Not uh great. Not creepy later House of Cards. I mean, it's all kind of <laughs> creepy now in retrospect, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Well, it was that video that he did over the holidays. That was where it was like, okay, now it's all officially creepy. Yeah. Why did he feel like people need, like, he's like, I know it'll get me out of this hole. <laughs> Frank Underwood. <laughs> the one guy I could turn to. Good Lord. Uh, we're not here to talk about him, for God's sakes. I don't even know if he's in any of the movies we're going to talk about. I guess we'll find out. Because we're, we're sure. going to talk with you. A, a bona fide movie expert and movie podcaster, uh, about mm. cult classics. Just take it. It's fine. We won't. Yeah. The, you, I the second one is, is objectively true. Yes. All right. Sure. Listen, we're, <laughs> we're three white men on the internet. We must be experts on everything, right? Isn't that how it works? Just white guys yelling into the void. Yeah. Just, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Look, can I, I, can I distance myself from this? Yeah. That's fair. Already? That's <laughs> fair. It'll be just me. I'll see everybody. Oh, I distanced myself from Hal long ago. Hold on. I just got it. Oh, I'm canceled. Sorry, guys. Oh, okay. Gotta go. That's cool. Too bad. Uh, no, we're here to talk about cult classic films. This was suggested by Scott Young in our Facebook group. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Scott. But before we jump into this, I, I kind of the, – the thing that was going through my head is what what exactly makes a cult film? D- does that have any particular meaning to either of you? Of, or, you know, Dan, when you think of a cult film, uh, well, just a general – did you guys ever – there were a series of books called uh, Cult Movies. No. Uh, I don't know these. That uh, Danny Peary put out, this critic, American film critic, a writer. He put them out in uh, – I'm looking it up now. There's three of them, Cult Movies, Cult Movies 2, Cult Movies 3, in 1980, 83, and 88. And I think that that was where I first sort of – kind of came to the concept mm-hmm. and i mean i don't think he originated the idea but like he sort of set his canon of them and and he had a more kind of like broad ranging definition than i think most people would like to him a cult movie was any movie that had a cult around it like any right. movie that had like this sort of rabid fan base and this was pretty much pre-home video when he was writing and a lot of these things you can only see in sort of repertory 
theaters on that circuit once in a while. And so, you know, he would like throw in something like Casablanca. Right. Because it had this, this, this rapid following, but it's not what we would think of today as a cult film. That seemed to me like a one barometer for what a cult film is, is would I see it on a marquee at the new art, uh, as a midnight showing? Yeah. Midnight, midnight showing seems to me to be one of the criteria of a cult movie. Yeah. Would that well, be fair? Yeah. And I think, I think in two ways. Number one, like, would it play very well while you were sleep deprived? And number mm-hmm. two, <laughs> uh, would, you, would there be an audience that cares enough about it that they would go to what is objectively to me as a, Almost 41 year old man, a bad time to see a movie. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. I thought that when I just went to go see, uh, I went to go see Endgame again Mm -hmm. and it was, I was just bored and I was up and I was like, eh, there's a midnight showing down the street. And I got there and I was like, what am I doing? It's two in the morning and this movie is still going on. Oh yeah. (laughs) That's a bad pick. Yeah. yeah. Three hour movie. Yeah. Exactly. For a midnight film. You know what? It's just a midnight movie. I'll go see Ben Hur. And Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> right. That's a double feature yeah. I can handle. I, for me, when I, this applies to Endgame as well. When I was, when it was easier for me to go to an 8 a.m. movie than an 11 p.m. movie, that was just sort of the reminder that my late movie days are far behind me. I well, just you're can't. an early, you're an early morning guy anyway, Damn, Hal. That's true. I get, I get texts from you at 7 a.m. Well, I just want to make sure that you're there. <laughs> I have to check. I'm very concerned. Uh, I, I think, yeah, I think there's an additional, so by Danny Peary's standards, his original standards, you would say Star Wars is a cult film because there's a huge following. They're fanatical. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, now uh, a lot of the definitions I found have been like people will dress up and there's an entire subculture built around the film. But mm-hmm. it seems like the thing that's become a modern definition of cult film is something that wasn't particularly financially successful in its initial run. Is that something we all agree on here? Interesting. Yeah, I like that notion because it does – like, uh, if a cult is something that, uh, springs up from a grassroots level and gets bigger as more people get involved, then a big blockbuster, does it by definition get eliminated? Yeah. And I think that, um, the modern definition of a cult film almost goes in the opposite direction of what we were initially talking about mm-hmm. because it's like, it's a cult film because it only appeals to a small subset of people. Like, you would have to, you know, like, it, it, you can't imagine it being made for someone else. Like, you like it because you're you and you're weird, mm-hmm. but why would anyone else ever want to watch this thing? Right. Almost. Right. Or, or you tell somebody you like it and the response is, really? Yeah. Do you think that cult films, and this is for both of you guys, do you think that cult films were more special before the internet? Or do you think that the internet has you know what I mean? Like no, there was, no, I, there is something exactly. special about that, that yeah. midnight screening that you or, or before home video even, you know, I think that everything was more special before the internet. <laughs> <laughs> sure. 100% of things like, but I know like, because if I remember when I was a kid before the internet was a thing, you know, like mm-hmm. you would watch like a cable show, like something like night flight or something. And they would show a weird short or an old cartoon, something that was uh, just sort of bent your mind by how strange it was that someone made this. And like that could excite you for weeks that you saw this weird, obscure thing. Yeah. Whereas like on the internet, you see 12 of those before breakfast. Right. Absolutely. I, I remember in high school, 
when the or even junior high when the jerky boys were just a, an underground tape it's not exactly mm-hmm. it's sort of a similar thing of if you heard it you felt like you were in on something that not many people got a hold of because you had to get it from a friend and then maybe you'd make a copy and maybe you'd distribute it to someone else but it was it again l- lends to that sort of ownership that you were yeah. talking about Dan of like this is mine it's my special thing not everybody has access uh, but the, the i guess the plus side of the internet now is if I talk to somebody who hasn't seen something, we could be watching it within minutes, right? If we wanted, mm-hmm. and also it, the internet has made it a lot easier. Like it, it may be less special and personally unique, but the internet has made it a lot easier for everybody to find their tribe for a movie. Yeah, definitely. Which I think is, you know, that one's the plus side and one's the minus, and I think that in this case, the good far outweighs the bad. Yeah, I, I think that's true. It's it's an interesting thing, like. Now we're getting into like sort of a philosophical thing beyond movies, but it's a weird, the internet's this weird place where there's, yes, this benefit that you, uh, can find your people. And then you get into this weird space where you only spend time with your people as weird as they may be. Right. Uh, (laughs) and so like a new sense of normalcy is created, but that's way off to the side of, of cult films. Sure. Sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, well, here, here's what we did. So our researcher, Kate McManus, put together a, this wild long list of cult films, some of which had choices in it that I wouldn't think of, like Mamma Mia, which in my mind is like, that made its money, right? That did well. But she rightly pointed out that there is a subculture around that film. Uh, and we've each picked five films either from that list or some sort of off that list from our brains. So mm-hmm. I thought what we'd do is sort of throw them out one at a time, talk about them a little bit, and then we'll sort of see where the overlaps are and figure out some finalists. And then we'll we'll, we'll use that to figure out the greatest cult film of all time. Does that Great. sound good? Sure. So uh, what might make this uh, – what might speed this along a little for us is mm-hmm. uh, if one mentions – one of the one of the films that's on your list, well, I'll uh, we'll second it or third it even. You know what I mean? Then we can, that, then we'll know that that's that one's eliminated. So we're not, you know, so we don't have to talk about the same movie twice. You guys know how to podcast. I'm not telling you anything. <laughs> I always appreciate pro tips. Yeah, um, Dan, do you want to <laughs> give us one of yours first? Uh, yeah. This uh, so I just wanted to say that um, before we start, that my movies I think are kind of heavily weighted toward um the uh late 70s and like 80s mm-hmm. um i think that that's it's probably because that's the time like I, I i was born in 78 so like a lot of these movies made a an impression on me early on mm-hmm. uh but i also think that there's something about that time period that was very uh fertile for cult movies mm-hmm. uh i think it's c- probably because it was around then that sort of the means of production, if you will, like it became easier for people to make movies and those movies were still being released to theaters rather than dumped onto Netflix without promotion. Right. right. But like big movies weren't sort of, I don't want to say like corporatized, but they hadn't become so, uh, the edges haven't, hadn't been sanded down. Maybe like weirder visions could yeah. make it still into like, movie theaters right um that's it so i think everything else i have on here is from the 80s this is the earliest it's from 74 it's the phantom of the paradise 
Ooh, I do not know this movie. What is The Phantom of the Paradise about? Uh, this is a movie by Brian De Palma, who you might know from such films as uh, Blow, Out, uh, Blow Out and uh, Body Double and Dress to Kill. And <laughs> the picking picking the big ones. <laughs> well, the first oh, Mission Impossible yeah. is the biggest one, but that's yeah. sure. It's kind of an outlier in his... Like, like his, uh, he's normally more of a kind of a, a more perverse Hitchcock, which is a lot, saying a lot since Hitchcock was pretty perverse in the first place. Right. But, um, yeah. Phantom of the Paradise is one of his goofier movies. It's about, uh, it's about a disfigured composer, um, who sells, this is basically a Faust story. Like he, he's a, he's a rock star. Who like sells his soul in quotes, but also kind of really to, uh, get a hit record. And, um, you know, but it's also like fan of the opera too, because right. he's like this disfigured guy who's in love with his former, uh, musical partner who has, uh, gone on to success or musical partner. Oh boy, it's been a while actually since I've seen this one. So I could be lying. Plus, you have I thousands of movies in your head. about this, um, <laughs> the plot to this movie. I should sure. have done more research beforehand on this one. <laughs> but the the thing I like about it though is the kind of evil music producer guys is played by Paul Williams. Um, Ooh, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. did he have his amazing 1970s Paul Williams bowl cut? He did, or like did. like blonde bangs. Uh, yes. And, uh, you know, people, mainly, like, the thing, the, like, Paul Williams has had several kind of careers in music in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, he's had, uh, like, popular hits, but I actually know him mostly as the guy who wrote the music to the Muppet movie. Sure. sure. I, I think Paul Williams, I think Rainbow Connection immediately. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm looking it up. It's, yeah, it's definitely a sort of a Faust, uh, fan of the opera combo. And it's a parody of sort of like the popular music business and, uh, what it takes to make it in. But it's, it's an interesting movie because it's really goofy in a way that a lot of Brian De Palma movies are. It's, it's, it's a comedy in many ways. It's a comedy version of a horror thriller and it has a lot of great music that was written for the movie. And then it has like weird brian de palma isms in the middle of all this craziness like he de palma did carrie and you know people remember the ending of carrie because it has all Mm -hmm. these split screens of things that are going on at the same time de palma loves split screens Mm -hmm. and there's a scene where uh this beach boys parody band i mean they're they're not parodying the beach boys they're just like clearly a pastiche of the beach boys is playing on stage and meanwhile the split screen shows that the car that's a prop in their act that has a bomb in it like sort of creeping towards the stage and um it's like it's this genuine moment of hitchcockian suspense in this very silly movie and the tone is all over the place in the best way like i kind of love a movie that doesn't totally have control of its tone uh, and this is one of them <laughs> it, very cool it's amazing to me looking through it i was looking at it on imdb that paul williams is the only actor in the film that i recognize like even by name and sort of scrolling through that 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 is amazing to me well um the one other one that you probably might know is Jessica Harper mm-hmm. who was also in some other cult movies she was in Suspiria the original Suspiria 
and she was in Shock Treatment, which was the sequel to the Rocky Horror Picture Show that was was that most people don't even know exists. It was so unsuccessful, but there was one, and she was in it. Wow. Yeah, this is an amazing. She's in the Starman TV show. She was in. She was in It's Gary <laughs> Shandling show, which is also pretty amazing. But yeah, it looks like she did like the rounds of late '80s, early '90s shows that we remember, including Tales from the Crypt. I guess uh, at Wise Guy. I guess I, I guess not many people remember the Starman TV show. Maybe I shouldn't include that. In, uh, was it, I mean, is this this is based on the John Carpenter? Yeah, with Starman, with uh, Robert Carradine stepping into not Robert Carradine. Um, oh my gosh, the, uh, from Airplane, the romantic lead from Airplane. He is the Starman. He steps yeah. in. Okay. He's he's your dime store, Jeff Bridges. Uh, but there you go. So that is <laughs> Phantom of the Paradise. Yes, I want to say I think that I think Jessica Harper plays like the Phantom sort of muse. Mm-hmm. I don't think they knew each other before he became the Phantom. I think my, in my crazy brain of like cult musicals, I'm mixing this up a little bit with The Apple. So oh, sure. Say that. Menachem Golan's uh, yes big hit. Oh boy, <laughs> <laughs> that is an incredible. I mean, just that could that could be one that is who know that maybe I don't know The Apple. Five. Uh, you're okay. Yeah. <laughs> is that the musical that's like in a cave with a co- actual cult? Uh, Am I thinking of yeah. something total? I just remember a cave scene. It's also, really uh, cool. I have clips from, I have clips in the background, uh, playing right now on my screen from Phantom of the Paradise. And, uh, right now a rock and roller has just been killed with a neon lightning bolt. and paul oh and then deep shadow shot of paul williams he was the one that released the lightning bolt i guess that's this movie's version of the chandelier falling in phantom of the opera (laughs) i know we don't have any other films that have been uh mentioned yet but this Mm -hmm. one feels like it's creeping up the ladder already (laughs) right well let's Uh, see what else we got Um, I am also going to go back to before I was born further back than 1974. I'm going to go to 1959. Uh, and this one holds a special place for me personally, because to me, this was my first like cult film as a kid. And it was the, we go to the store, we rent the V, we first heard about this movie on some movie, a show that talked about movies. We thought it was amazing. Uh, and then eventually they made another movie about the making of this movie. But when we were kids, it was all about going and renting that VHS tape of Plan 9 from Outer Space. Oh, yeah. Sure. That was uh, that was my introduction to not only cult movies, but my introduction to B-movies. Uh, for those who don't know, Plan 9 from Outer Space was uh, named by many uh, for a long time the worst movie ever made until everyone grabbed a camera. I think mostly because of uh, the Golden Turkey Wars to talk about other old books about movies did Mm -hmm. you ever read this no it was kind of the like people were watching bad movies for pleasure obviously before this but i think it really kind of helped popularize that as a as a thing like it came that was a book that came out in the in 1980 Mm -hmm. and plan nine from outer space one worst movie and um, it was written by Harry Medved and Michael Medved before Michael Medved became right. a horrible conservative. But anyway, <laughs> right. go on. <laughs> yeah, is it? I mean, Plan Nine from Outer Space is sort of the the avatar for all bad, at least bad sci-fi, yeah. and all bad movies in general. That's 
it counts it, for I, something. I think there's an earnestness to that movie that I love. That it's that Ed Wood, like the dialogue about that is just hammer it over your head. The dialogue about people being bad and causing all of these problems. Uh, Kreskin, for some stupid reason, at the beginning of the movie, they just had or Criswell, uh, who was like their version of it. Uh, Criswell predicts or whatever. Just having a mesmerist on at the beginning of this movie. It just seemed to be like that John Goodman movie matinee. It seemed like just throwing whatever that would stick. And you know, there's all those fun facts about the movie, like Bella Lugosi originally starred in it. And then the dentist took over the role when Lugosi died. And that's why he's got his cape over his face. Anyone who's seen Ed <laughs> Wood knows all taller. of these stories. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's so clearly just shot in a recent housing development in Burbank or somewhere (laughs) like all of everywhere that it's shot. It looks the sets for this movie, aside from the ones that are clearly inside a soundstage, the ones that are outdoors look precisely like the sets for the movies that I made with my friends when we were you know, eight, nine, ten years old when we just grabbed the camcorder and would go outside in our subdivision. But those are, and in fact, shout out to my buddy, Brandon Carroll. Uh, those are the, uh, those, he was who I would watch this particular movie with along with our other buddies. Yeah. Lugosi was, uh, I think like basically top build, but I think he's only in like five minutes or so of actual footage because that's all Ed Wood got before he died. And it's all like, Footage without sound of Belagosi leaving a house and smelling a flower. <laughs> yeah. And it's just like a narrator thing, like explaining what's going on. It's yeah. It's crazy. It's so bizarre. Um, so yeah, that's my, that's the first one on my list. Hal, what do you got? You know, I want to go, uh, back to the seventies. This is the earliest film on my list and okay. one that I think I, I'm kind of struggling with whether this is actually a cult film or not. I think it is, even though it, it's, considered successful it's it's on a lot of best films uh, top 100 of all time and that is a clockwork orange from 1971 uh, uh, i was so i was so certain you were going to say rocky just because it's philadelphia <laughs> listen it's a story about a man from philadelphia <laughs> who fights the odds and just proves that he belongs uh, in um, the ring with apollo creed no i i think a clockwork orange is uh Interesting in a lot of different ways for, for what it represents for filmmaking at the time, the style of it, uh, one of the, I think one of the final sort of legit rated X movies, mm-hmm. uh, that was put out there. And, but bizarrely like fits, it almost fits like nowhere in film. It doesn't even really fit into Stanley Kubrick's collection of movies. It kind of, to me, sticks out, uh, in a way, even mm-hmm. though he has a general sort of style and, and, and pieces of his work. You can sort of identify as, as sort of like, all right, that's one of his movies for sure. Uh, I just, it's so, I, I love how bizarre it is. And it kind of, I watched it in college when AFI's first top 100 movies came out. I, I realized I hadn't seen any of them. So I just started renting them three at a time. Did not mm-hmm. go to parties in college. I watched blockbuster movies and this was, this was one that felt like it kind of smacked me in the face. Yeah. I, I, I like this movie a lot. Before I saw Clockwork Orange, I I rested easier knowing that of all the things that could happen in the world, nobody, at least I knew that nobody could ever make me watch something I didn't want to watch. And then I saw that <laughs> yes. movie and I was like, oh, well, <laughs> all right. Now the world is slightly more terrifying. Exactly. But but is this a cult movie? Dan, do you would you That's classify hard, this as cult? I, I, I mean, I guess if... Any of his movies 
could be considered cult movies. I'm going over them in my head. This would be it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think I, unfortunately for some of the wrong reasons, I think, I think people are drawn to kind of the, the ultra violence, uh, right. as they say in the movie. Yes. Rather than kind of the overall message of, Freedom and the state restricting freedom and whether you can force a person to be a good person and, and, and all of that. Yeah. Um, right. I, I think, I think not because I don't like the movie, but because it maybe attracts the wrong sort of edgy fan a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. It hasn't spoken to me as much as like other Kubrick films. I'm, I, I, I Dr. Strangelove is probably my personal favorite. Absolutely. I, my, mine as well. This one, just when I think of a cult movie. Yeah. It's just so bizarre. It doesn't fit anywhere, but. You do bring up a good point. I think people, when you use it's the wrong cult, <laughs> when you use ultra violence and and uh, sexual assault to prove a point, you are going to attract mm, yeah. people who only look at it uh, at face value, and then it it's unintentionally transmitting the wrong message. I also feel like um, a little bit of. I don't know. To me, if I think of Clockwork Orange as being a cult movie, as much as I think of. Uh, the cult of Kubrick. Right. You know what I mean? Like, there are Kubrick heads. I don't know what the, what it is, how it breaks down by specific movies. Well, I am more than happy to introduce it and then immediately cross it out. <laughs> Done. <laughs> bye bye, Clockwork. Hey, Orange. you remember that episode where Hal wanted to use that super violent movie as the best I thing didn't. he'd ever seen? I just was saying it's a, <laughs> it was a top five. It was like probably number six, really. I'm, I'm going to replace it with Bottle Rocket. Uh, Dan? <laughs> All right. What else you got, Dan? What do you have next? Uh, my next one is Heathers. Ah, yes. Now, this is probably the movie I watched most when I was a teen. This and Aliens, uh, mm-hmm. would be in competition with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was just, when I saw this, I was just blown away that there was something this mean that was this funny. Yeah. Uh, and it also had, of course, one owner writer and, you know, that, for the type of man I am, uh, growing up when I did, like, mm-hmm. I, like everyone else, was in love with Winona Ryder. She was my first great celebrity crush. So that certainly helped me, uh, love it. Mm-hmm. And it's just, I mean, in addition to being a very clever movie, I think it, it looks beautiful. It's, it's got this, like, these sort of, uh, saturated colors, but not in a way that it's like dayglow day popping. Like there's, there's still kind of like almost like a mist over the movie while, while having right. saturated colors. Like a high school. A high school is very bright and, uh, saturated, but also you know, there's a little mist of darkness. <laughs> right. I, I mean, but it's weird that it's so well directed in a, in a way because the guy who directed it, Michael Lehman also did like, so listen to this list of movies. Mm-hmm. He did Because I Said So, Airheads, Meet the Applegates, a movie about <laughs> oh, people, uh, yep. giant bugs disguised as humans, yeah. Hudson Hawk, <laughs> The Truth About Cats and Dogs, and 40 Days and 40 Nights, which is my co-host uh, Stuart's least favorite film of all time. <laughs> um, so it's, uh, I, I mean, I have to give him his credit for this movie, but not not a great director otherwise. But the guy who wrote it, Daniel Waters... Did some other interesting things. I mean, he also wrote Hudson Hawk, uh, but he wrote uh, <laughs> great, great classic film. <laughs> he wrote Batman Returns and Demolition Man, mm. which are are interesting, weird movies. And I, you know, I'm gonna be repeating a bunch of 
stories that are half remembered and possibly apocryphal uh, <laughs> sure. during this podcast. But well, welcome to our show. Yes, please. It, it was my understanding that like the initial screenplay to Heather's was one of these things where like this guy wrote out this long thing like this longhand thing that would have been three hours or or four hours if it had been shot as it was and it was like not in proper screenplay form like he just sort of didn't know what he was doing and Mm -hmm. god bless him i'm happy that the movie got made but whenever i hear an anecdote like that i'm like how like i'm I'm like a tv writer (laughs) and i would love to write a movie someday i'm like how come on yeah come on guys like what 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 happened (laughs) you you watch this movie and you are like because it's so mean and weird and now knowing that story it does you watch it and it's kind of like wait they're allowed to make movies like this yeah well i'm probably not now i mean like i'm not one of those yeah that's true i think it's all for the best that we are um, much more sensitive than, than, than we have been in the past as mm-hmm. a, a people. Uh, so I'm not a person who's like, well, they couldn't make that today in general, but I do think it'd be very difficult to be like, all right, we're going to do a comedy. Mm-hmm. It's about, uh, a couple of lovers who are in high school and they kill other high school students and they make it look like suicides. Yeah. There are heroes. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's rough. It it definitely, but it, I, yeah, I agree with you. You probably could make it today, but it benefits greatly from when it came out. Like it just is sort of, what is it? 89? Is that right? 88. Uh, 88. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's like just sort of the perfect era, uh, for, for that type of movie. It's almost like ahead of its time for 1988. Um, I, and I love how dark it is. I've seen it a ton of times. Yeah. Uh, the repeated funerals. Just like, yeah. there's something so brilliant about it. And, and it does stick with people. I think that's another piece of like a, of a cult film. It's one thing to sort of see it and say, I liked it. It's another thing to have it stick with you and, and sort of actively seek it out. And I think this is one of those movies that the, the, the most diehard fans will watch it anytime, anywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I saw, um, there was a Winona Ryder marathon at the alamo draft house in brooklyn it was like a mystery marathon they did not reveal the movies ahead of time mm. oh that's fun yeah but uh all went on a writer films and this was what they kicked it off with and i think there are people in the audience who hadn't seen it before and it it still played great in the theater it was it was really fun absolutely i also love that you mentioned meet the apple gates i'm looking on right now <laughs> online right now and i see that that, that was, was his his very that, that's the uh uh ed, ed begley jr in the bug movie yeah yeah uh and it was his movie right after heathers yeah. so i like to think that there's a letter floating around somewhere to a studio that's like okay if you liked heathers you're gonna love this <laughs> i mean that was certainly my thinking when i tried to watch meet the apple gates and i was Disappointed almost immediately. <laughs> yeah, well, that makes sense. It's a very oh, disappointing movie. It's so bad. I f- feel like when um, I watched that, I was like, "There's no way it's it's as bad as everybody says it is." And there, and I was right. It was worse. Like you cannot be prepared <laughs> for how bad that movie is. All right, I'm going to throw my second one out there. Do it, and I'm going to say because this is probably one near and dear to all of our hearts collectively, knowing that we all work in comedy. Uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Oh, yes. Uh, that is, uh, and all of these, again, I'm, this was not a subject I was able to look at objectively. Basically, I just picked all the movies I watched with Brandon as a kid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and this was another one of those ones that we wore out. And I think 
being influential is another uh, aspect of a cult movie that we can look at. And this influenced comedy. It's still influencing comedy. Monty Python specifically, but also the, or Monty Python generally, but also this movie specifically. Thoughts, gents? Uh, yeah. I mean, this is one that, you know, I mean, like it's been slightly ruined for me by generations upon generations of nerds like me quoting it all the time. Yeah, sure. But when I saw it for the first time, I think it was on like, I saw it on like A&E back when A&E actually was arts and entertainment. Yeah. Right. As they do now. Um, and, I was just, my mind was blown by how funny it was. And, you know, there are like arguments over what the best Monty Python movie is. I mean, it's mostly between this and Life of Brian. There are not a lot of meaning of life partisans out there, even though mm-hmm. it's got funny stuff in it. Yeah. Uh, and people always say, oh, you know, you know, like Life of Brian is the, the cohesive one. And because, because it works as a movie better, right. some people like it better, but. I just, I like, I'm still a holy grail man. Well, making a cohesive, making a cohesive thing was never Monty Python's. Exactly. That's not what they were. They were now for something completely different. Yeah. That's why I like the crazy early Marx Brothers movies more than when they went over to MGM and they're like, right. Oh no, now we're going to make some real films. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. You got to watch, uh, is it horse feathers? The college one where the sets are wobbling and the extras are lips are lip, uh, lip matching along with Groucho's lines. (laughs) Oh, that's one of my favorite scenes. That movie is, that movie is up there because it's straight out of vaudeville Marx Brothers. Yeah. 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 The great thing about, uh, about Holy Grail is they've moved out. I think that the film before this was uh, now for something completely different, which is just a filmed version of a bunch of their TV sketches. Mm-hmm. Then, then they come out with this, which is sort of a loose framework for them to write a bunch of new material. And then, and then as you said, Dan, Life of Brian is a little more cohesive, but I actually think that that's to their detriment. I, I, what's great about Holy Grail is that they're kind of untethered and going crazy not that they were ever buttoned up on television but there's something about this that that feels like a a fuller form and continuation of what they were doing on television as much as i love life of brian and there are great bits in it but it becomes a slave to the story at a certain point yeah. mm-hmm. and and those are the parts that you feel like you can skip yeah yeah and <laughs> it's a brilliant choice of like subject for the movie too because like, I mean, we were talking about the Marx Brothers, just as the Marx Brothers work best when it's like they all got invited to a society party for some reason. And it's yeah. Like, well, why would you ever do that? It's crazy. Right. Like here it's like such a serious, uh, like the, the genre they're doing usually has such high seriousness to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's immediately deflated by them, you know, like galloping around with coconuts or whatever. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so that's my second slot. These are not in in favorite order. These are no. just in order that I wrote them. No. Um, Hal, what's up? I'm going to take us to the 90s, 1993, Dazed and Confused. Mm. A Richard Linklater movie, the film debut of Matthew McConaughey, fresh off of his role on Unsolved Mysteries mm-hmm. uh, as, a guy, as a murder victim. And they actually caught that murder. That is a true story. Uh, I, I, there's something about this movie that I love at, outside of the fact that it's got a billion future stars in it. Everyone from like a, a growing Anthony Rapp to Ben Affleck, uh, to one of the London twins. Can't even remember which one. It's just Jeremy. like a Jeremy. Thank you. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I have a sense of nostalgia about the seventies, probably because I was born in 77. We're all 
Sure, you remember the 70s so well. Well, I want to remember. I feel like that was – like that's the decade I just missed because the 80s Mm -hmm. were my decade. So there's something uh, about the 70s that's attractive to me. Like what did I miss then? What would it have been like? And although this is a highly fictionalized version of that, Mm -hmm. I'm a sucker for high school movies. And I think this is a very well done one. And they he managed to juggle a lot of characters really well. It's got iconic lines in it. Uh, and it was not a huge hit. I think they expected it to be more successful than it was. And it's lived on partially because I think it's a good movie and partially because Richard Linkletter has gone on to more and more acclaim. Yeah. I, 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 and it's got an amazing soundtrack. Yes. It's, it was the soundtrack that everyone bought when I was. Well, it uh, works so perfectly well with this movie too. Cause like God knows I'm not an Aerosmith fan, but as mm-hmm. soon as this movie starts and sweet emotion is playing as that car is like turning the corner in slow motion or, or, or whatever mm-hmm. it is, like I'm just like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It drops you in, doesn't it? It's, it's great. I, I did not know. I, apparently God knew, but we did not know that you are not an Aerosmith fan. Yes. That's right. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, Dan, what do you got for us? Uh, my next one is Evil Dead 2. Ah, yes. Or Evil Dead 2, Dead by Dawn, depending on how much, how many words you like to say. It's right. uh, from 87, Sam Raimi, who went on to big things like the uh, Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movies, directed it. And uh, this is an interesting movie because, so the first Evil Dead was this low-budget, low, low, low-budget movie that Sam Raimi and his friends made, your basic cabin in the woods horror movie mm-hmm. um you know like people start getting possessed by an evil force and killing each other and evil dead 2 is interesting because it's like kind of a sequel kind of a remake like the the movie basically recaps all of evil dead one in the first five minutes it has kind of a mm-hmm. previously on evil dead thing going on and then <laughs> It goes into a new movie, but the new movie is sort of basically just Evil Dead over again, except for this time, it's funny. Like, right. there's moments of humor in the first one, but it's definitely mostly a straight-ahead horror movie, whereas this is like, you know, what if horror movie but Three Stooges is is what's, what's going on. And, right. Um, it just moves so fast. Like, it gets right into it immediately. I, I I watched it again a few years ago, and I was like, okay, you know, it's going to take a little while before people get possessed and, and heads start popping off and eyeballs fly. And, like, no, it it's almost right away, and then it just doesn't stop for the the blessedly short 84 minutes that it is. I, I, I love a good short movie that uh, packs a lot in and this is one of them were there horror comedies like i guess there were all always horror comedies but but this seems like it it launched you know the, like tucker and dale versus evil and yeah. uh the the scream yeah. movies to some extent I, I are all like the fright night movies sort of tried to mm-hmm. do this but it was there's something a little more primal about about evil dead uh, a little grittier that that I think makes it it, it 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 is able to jump back and forth a little bit better. Yeah, and I also like I think that it might be I don't I don't know if I'd be confident in saying that it was the first splatter comedy, mm-hmm. but it's definitely one of the first and probably the most influential. Meaning that like it is a comedy that is 
not afraid to be super gross and just like have buckets and buckets of blood and people cutting arms off and mm-hmm. crazy shit happening. Now, did Evil Dead 1 have a cult following? Because I don't know if we need to dock this one point in the cult section because of its self-awareness. You know what I mean? Like if they were like, oh, Evil Dead 1 turned out to be campy. Let's make this one campier. You know what I mean? I think I mean, it felt a little bit more subtle. I, well, mm-hmm. maybe not subtle, but natural rather than them going, we're going to course correct. Sort okay. of seeing, all right, that's what this is. Let's, let's take the next step because th- then you get to Army of Darkness, which is way more comedy. Than right. Horror. With the skeleton, with the insane skeleton scene and all that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, I don't, the thing is, like, I don't know if I'd call it camp in the traditional sense because it is. Right. I, I, it's quality, it's quality work. It's like Cabin in the Woods, you wouldn't call camp. Co- right. Cabin in the Woods, it's, it's, it is a comedy, but it's expertly executed. And the first Evil Dead, um, while it wasn't like this huge movie, I believe like it had huge, uh, proponents. Like Stephen King was one of them. And I think, I can't remember whether Ebert came in with the first one or the second one, but like, uh, I think that this was more less a course correction and more like Sam Raimi was like, okay, they want me to make another Evil Dead, but I want to do it silly. Like, like I'm what's going to make it interesting to me is if we just throw a bunch of shit at Bruce Campbell, <laughs> right? Because they knew what they, they knew the goal that they had in Bruce yeah. Campbell. Yeah. All right, I'll throw another one out there uh, off my list. This is my this is my fourth. Were we on this third choices or fourth choices? Third, third, third choice. And I'm going to, I, you know, I mean, obviously, I'm saving some of the ones that I think we might all have on our list, right? Maybe uh, for later. But I'm going to put again for personal reasons because I love. This is all just movies I love. I'm putting The Princess Bride on there. I don't know how well The Princess Bride did in its initial run. I know that since then there is not a person. My age that I know who has not seen that movie. And I think it is infinitely quotable and great performances all around from every, every time I think of any of the actors that are in that movie, I think of them from that. Like I think of Mandy Patinkin and I don't think Homeland. I think Inigo Montoya. I think of Wallace Shawn and I don't think, uh, my dinner with Andre. I think inconceivable, you know, mm-hmm. uh, what do you think, fellas? Think about Andre the Giant and you think of this because he didn't really do other movies. Right. That's, that's exactly. It. This was it. Uh, um, yeah, I think it was, I think it was pretty damn popular when it came out, but I'm not going to argue with the cult designation just because people are so fanatically attached to it. Right. All right. That's, uh, yeah, that, that's short and sweet. Look, it's, <laughs> okay. I, I remember seeing it in the theater. I, I love it. I've watched mm-hmm. it countless times. It is my wife, uh, Jennifer's favorite movie and, it's I, I think it's a good choice for the list. I agree. There's a fanatical following around it, mm-hmm. uh, and there is also a fanatical following around my third choice, which is uh, from 1989. Weird Al Yankovic's only film, uh, oh. his only original film, UHF. Sure, which was a a bomb. Did not succeed uh, really at all, but. <laughs> <laughs> Weird Al was, but has popular. it succeed? Has it succeeded as a cult? Like absolutely. I okay. Think people, I think the people, I, I think it fits cult really well because not everybody knows about it. Yeah. But I don't know true. many people who have seen it that don't love it. Yeah. And everybody goes, "Oh, I love that movie." When you mention it, yeah, it's very. I funny. had the poster on my wall as a kid. <laughs> exactly. It's funny. Yeah. It's silly. It came at the tail end 
and and it I think it would get lumped in with movies like Airplane or Naked Gun, which mm. is kind of unfair, but also kind of very fair. It's a more specific parody of a right. very specific genre. And the parodies uh, or, live or within. It's like source general. music. Yeah, it's more like here's all of television. We're gonna we're gonna mm-hmm. hit every kind of television show you can think of, rather than this is just a cop movie or this is just disaster films. And I I love it. It's still Michael Richards. I actually like his performance in this. <laughs> yeah, way better than I like uh, him on Seinfeld. He, as Stanley Spadowski, he that was how I was introduced to him. That's how he's uh, Pamela Finkelstein. That's how I was introduced to Fran Drescher. Mm-hmm. Uh, was this movie? It's just and um, Jombie the Genie playing the lackey to Kevin McCarthy. Yeah, it's yeah. I'm gonna be a bit of a slight UHF naysayer. Ooh, uh, all right. Uh, I I will. I'm gonna preface it by saying, look. I like the movie. Mm-hmm. Internet, don't come after me. <laughs> I know that, I know, I know who you are, internet, and I know that you're going to be mad that I don't like UHF. <laughs> but to me, I have the same feeling about UHF that I have about sort of Weird Al in general, which is a lot of, a lot of affection, mm-hmm. a lot of warm feeling, a lot of pleasant feeling, but I'm not like, okay, this guy's like a comedy genius. You know what I mean? Like that like I see things in UHF like um like the ad for Gandhi 2. Yep. Right. And the whole joke is like, oh Gandhi like Gandhi 2, he's taking his revenge. He's really violent in this one. And I'm like, okay, well that's, you know, the the most obvious. Joke. <laughs> sure. Like it's like, oh, it's the opposite of the thing he is. You know, so I have a bit. Yeah, but he's doing it. I mean, it's it maybe it's because we saw it as kids and yeah. when you're first introduced to comedy, that is, it's, it's sort of, it does have a comedy 101 feel about it. I love it. And I'm a, I'm, I will always be a Weird Al, uh, mega fan. So maybe I'm colored by being a well, big I, Weird I, Al I do fan. Like, I mean, he puts so much energy into everything he does. And that's, mm-hmm. that's what I, that's what I do love about UHF. It's got a lot of, a lot of spirit, let's say. Right. That's the way I look at it. Yeah. All right. Yeah. 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 I, and I still appreciate that. I love the energy of it. And I get it. It's not, it's far from highbrow. It's even farther from satire. It's just like they gave him money to make a movie. He had a good time. And yeah. I, I'm able to sort of shut off. I sort of have to shut it off and go like, all right, I'm going to have fun with you, Weird Al, because I, yeah. I love you and trust you. And and um, it's just more like this is a movie that has somehow persisted. It should should not still be something <laughs> that anybody talks about because it, it would be like – it should be not the great stain, but like sort of a, 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 a low point of his career because he was on an uptick and then he finally gets to make a movie and mm-hmm. nobody goes to see it. But since then it has become, it, it continues to live and people enjoy it. I think that's, that's kind of cool and, and a little bit of what cult is about. All right. All right. What do you got? Should we take a break and then we'll get, we'll come and uh, bring up the rear on these uh, last few films? Yeah. Okay. Let's take a quick break. Let's we'll, do it. We'll, uh, uh, when we come back, I'm going to make you a promise, everybody. We will get through the rest of our films and we'll start just slashing them. They're going to yeah. disappear. And if you don't hear yours mentioned, I'm sorry, but I look forward to your podcast about it. We'll be right back. <laughs> Hi, I'm Biz. And I'm Teresa. And we host One Bad Mother, a comedy podcast about parenting. Whether you are a parent or just know kids exist in the world, join us each week as we honestly share what it's like to be a parent. And then that's how my day starts. Yeah. Come on. I'm I, so I, sick of it. <laughs> when is that going to be over? 
up. <laughs> Teresa, you're hurting my ears. <laughs> I mean, that's it. Yeah, no, that's... I just hate it. Yeah, I don't blame <laughs> you. It sucks. It really sucks. So join us each week as we judge less, laugh more, and remind you that you are doing a great job. Find us on MaximumFun.org, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, Alexis, we got big news. Uh Uh-oh. Season one, done. It's over. Season two, coming at you hot. Three years after. (laughs) Three and a half. Season one. Technically almost four years. All right. And now, listen, here at Can I Pet Your Dog, the Smash It podcast, our seasons run for three and a half years. (laughs) And then at season two, we come at you with new hot co-hosts. Named you. Hi, I'm Alexis. <laughs> uh, field trip. Dog tech. Yeah. Dog news. Dog news. Celebrity guests. Oh, big shots. Will not let them talk about their resume. Nope. Only yeah, the dogs. Only the dogs. I mean, if ever you were going to get into Can I Pet Your Dog. Now's the time. Get in here every Tuesday at MaximumFun.org. All right, we're back. It is your turn, Dan. What do you got for us? My next one is one that I actually uh, stuck on the big document that we were Working off of when changing mm-hmm. some of these. It's uh, Return of the Living Dead from 1985. So this is a bit of interesting trivia. So I know this from reading the book written, that the book that John A. Russo wrote about his career in Hollywood, which mostly went downhill after he... Uh, he was one of the, the guys who co-wrote... Night of the Living Dead right. with George A. Romero. And he also wrote the book Making Movies, which I had as a kid. Yeah, maybe that's yeah. the book I'm thinking of, in fact. Big, but, the big, the, oh, the, yeah, the big gray, gray cover, or at least the cheap paperback I had of it was. And yeah, he talks a lot about Return of the Living Dead in there. Yeah, and uh, so the deal with that was uh, Russo and uh, Romero sort of split after Night of the Living Dead and they uh, had to figure out what to do with the rights to the, the the zombie movies that they both wanted to make. And so Russo got the rights to Living Dead as a title thing. And uh, Romero went off and on to do Dawn of the Dead and Day <laughs> of the Dead, so forth. And so this is not an official sequel to Night of the Living Dead, but it is part of the Night of the Living Dead family. Right. And uh, my friend Stuart, who I mentioned before, has kind of referred to this as a punk rock remake of Night of the Living Dead. I remember there were punks on the poster, the cover art for this movie. Yes. Well, punk uh, zombies. In yeah. In fact. Punk zombies. Um, it's another horror comedy, possibly my favorite genre, uh, specifically 80s horror comedies are my favorite. And it's about, you know, like the, like these zombies, uh, are like in the bottom of the, like there's a medical supply store that has zombies stuff in it. Like the gas escapes, more zombies happen, you know, you know, the whole drill, but, um, but this is the movie that brought us the idea that zombies crave brains in particular. Mm. Ah, um, this I think was the first instance of any sort of fast zombies and it's a very nihilistic film. I won't give away the ending, but even though it's a comedy, it has a lot of genuine pain in it and a very like kind of bleak ending that blew my mind when I was a kid. And it's uh, I, I just also wanted to mention it's co-written by Dan O'Bannon, who wrote, among other things, most significantly Alien. But he also co-wrote John Carpenter's first movie, Dark Star, and he co-wrote Total Recall. So he's a big genre uh, writer. Right on. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, 
And also the movie stars Clue Gulliger. The great Who? Clue Gulliger. Great. Who is that's that's one of the all time great names. Who is Clue Gulliger? Clue Gulliger. That name sounds like it sticks other names together. I mean, I know him mostly from this, to be honest, but I mm-hmm. also but I know that he's a a uh, very well respected character actor of of years and years and years. Yeah, he's in um uh Nightmare on Elm Street as Mr. Walsh, he's in the Last Picture Show, and maybe notably if you watch the first season of Project Greenlight, they're making a movie called Feast and he is he's sort of the get for the guy who eventually uh wins that contest and gets to make his movie. So, that's right on. he uh, a new generation of people got to know Clue Gulliger thanks to Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, and HBO. Uh Mark? Yeah. Uh, I have I have two left in there. I think I think in my opinion, big contenders. But you know, okay. we'll see what you guys think. I'm going to start with uh, the room. I'm going to second that. Yeah, the room is. Uh, it's. I think it because I have witnessed this cult firsthand uh, when the movie first came out, and Tommy Wiseau was sitting out in the audience taking questions, doing a Q and A before the movie even began. Yep, which should have been a big red flag. Uh, I did not know what I was in for. It's one of those cult movies that the entire audience knew everything to yell. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is objectively terrible, the movie itself. When the DVD came out, there's actually an audio commentary track that just is the audience responses to uh, to scenes that are happening in the movie. Yep. And they famously won Oscars for being a mo- There was a movie the disaster artist about how terrible both the process and the product were for this. And yet people still flock to theaters and see this movie. It seems to me the definition of a cult film. It it's, I I mean, a a lot of what makes this movie, which is objectively terrible. Like there's nothing, there's nothing good or redeeming about it at right down to how it's edited. Like Mm -hmm. it just makes it's edited. Like, like um, Bohemian Rhapsody was edited, like choppy, doesn't make any sense. Like, might as well have given them an Oscar uh, for their right. editing. Um, <laughs> but the, really, like, the mystery of Tommy Wiseau that we don't really know where he's from. He doesn't like to talk about how old he is. He doesn't talk about where his money came from, but he spent several million dollars to make this movie, yeah. including, uh, you know, the stuff in The Disaster Artist were all the stories that we had heard in L.A. And he had – I don't think he still has the billboard, but he had a billboard on Cahuenga heading north. That would sit there and I would see it when I, uh, you know, in the early years of being out here and wonder what it was. Yeah. The early 2000s, there was always a great big Tommy Wiseau staring at you as you drove up, uh, as you drove. I thought it was La Brea. I, mean, I don't know what street it was on. No, it was on, it was definitely on Coenga. It was, it was right, heading towards the 101. There you go. Uh, it, yeah. It's just this bizarre. He's not somebody who should be on a post. It's like so everything about it is unsettling. And then you go and see the movie. Like I thought it was a horror film. I thought the poster mm-hmm. was – that was a billboard for a horror film, clearly, yeah. like he's a vampire or something. And then you see the movie and it's like a million times better than anything you could hope with that it, that it would be. It's it's weird watching it. I will say – And it's it garbageness. Home. Yeah. Like you kind of, that's one you want to see in a theater. It is a vastly mm. superior experience than wa- to watching it at home where you feel like I could be doing something else in my home right now than watching this movie. Right. Just a side note. Um, Greg Sestero, the – co-star uh, of this movie mm-hmm. i got to moderate a discussion with him at the alamo draft house uh a while back um for his movie that he wrote but did not direct but uh and starred in uh with tommy again 
uh, Best Friends, which was actually a two-part movie. I was there for the second part. Mm -hmm. And he was a very, very pleasant man who uh, had a lot of great stories about, you know, making his movie and, you know, theories about Tommy. And uh, it was a pleasure to talk to him. Uh, But I got a photo with him afterwards. And I'll tell you something. Even though he was in a terrible movie, he also is a Hollywood actor, which means that he's very handsome and thin. And I advise right. you never to do that. Do not get a photo <laughs> next to Greg <laughs> But is it okay to buy underwear from Tommy Wiseau at a Comic-Con? Because that's what he, he sets up. Like, uh, it looks like a set to a 1983 punk video. Like, that's what his booth looks like. And then he sells underwear. That is true. <laughs> and it's scared. Like, I'm, I'm like afraid of him. If I see him in person, I'm afraid he's going to like, I don't know, touch me and I'll disintegrate. He's a strange, strange man. <laughs> yeah, he is. I'm going to throw out uh, for my final one, another one that I think is a finalist, be impossible to have a cult movie discussion without it, and that is 1975's Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah. Mm. I mean, it's sort of... That's 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 also the fifth one on my list. Yeah, I mean, that's one... And in my opinion, nearly impossible to beat in this category. It's tough. It did not do well at its initial release. It has lived on as not only a film, but an experience... Mm-hmm. You, you know, the music, um, it, I don't think it elevated Tim Curry. I don't think Tim Curry needs to be elevated by anything, but it is one of, of his most iconic roles, which for a movie that, you know, really shouldn't, again, shouldn't have gone anywhere, uh, is pretty incredible. The music is great mm-hmm. and, uh, it, it still it continues to live on sort of stronger than ever. Like it will not, it will not die. You can find a midnight showing in pretty much any city. And find a group of people all dressed up as the characters, taking turns going up. It's like live karaoke meets live theater meets uh, going to see a movie. It's incredible. It would be weird to go to a Comic-Con and not see those characters. Yeah. <laughs> I have a hot take on Rocky Horror Picture Show. Uh-oh. Have, like, well, it's just, it, it's just that I do not want to, I do not want to take anything away from the people who have found a sense of community in doing Rocky Horror, like live shows. Right. I think that it's been a sense of like like solace to uh, any number of people who maybe feel like they're they were weirdos in in some way or another in their regular life and could express that uh, through this movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, I I've been to a live show and I actually prefer watching the movie without the interaction because I think that. To some degree, a lot of the stuff that is built up around the the movie kind of holds itself above the movie as if the movie is bad. Right. And I do not right. think the movie is bad. I think the movie is doing exactly what it wants to. I mean, it is campy, yeah. but mm-hmm. it is intentionally campy. And everyone is putting in great performances. They're doing exactly what they need to do. And the music is wonderful, and I just think it. I think it's it. It stands on its own. I would agree with that. Actually, I'm not. I don't. Uh, I I don't disagree with that take. And I'm not someone who particularly cares to go into a group of people who are super into something that I like. You know, I like. I'm not at that level. So uh, I love that it exists, and I love that it exists without me because I need to be in bed by ten. <laughs> So yeah, so you can get up at seven to go see a movie. That's right, Mark. You feel like I feel like you're somebody who has been to more than one live Rocky Horror Picture show. Is that correct? Of course I have. Of course who I do you, have. Who do you dress up as? Are you uh, I don't dress up when I go. No. Uh, I no. I like to watch it. I like watching a cast do it. 
But if you had um, to dress up as somebody, would it be Frankenfurter? If I had to dress up as like someone, were of like, course it would be Frankenfurter. Okay, just wanted to make yeah. sure. Just yeah, I feel like I feel like visually I look like more like I should dress up like Cousin Eddie. Um, <laughs> but I've got I've got a Frankfurter in my heart, brother. Yeah, I sure. will say also this uh, tremendous. I this is uh, some of my go to karaoke stuff because like David Bowie is right in my wheelhouse, and mm-hmm. a lot of Frankenfurter stuff is is right in that same kind of uh, glam rock vein, glam rock baritone. Yeah. 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 Uh, what's your final movie you got for us, Dan? Uh, my final one is one that I also added to the list. It's uh, from, what's the year? 1986. And it is Big Trouble in Little China. Oh, Directed yeah. by John Carpenter, who is a, I would call a cult director, even though he's had great big hits. But mm-hmm. like, I think, I think he's become sort of stealthily hugely influential just recently mm-hmm. like i think as people who grew up in the 80s are uh are making movies and tapping their own nostalgia a lot of carpenter i see in things like for instance stranger things is obviously mm-hmm. a lot of spielberg and a lot of stephen king but i also think there's a lot of john carpenter in there and a lot of yeah. john carpenter's like scores he like does the music for most of his own movies and that kind of um uh, heavy synthesizer score has mm-hmm. become big again. But um Big Trouble in Little China, it was his attempt to make an American version of the Kung Fu movies that he loved and were not actually well known in America at the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh as such it flopped and people did not know what to make of it. Um uh but it's it's an interesting movie because like it Kurt Russell stars in it and he's hilarious in it and he's very charming as a buffoon. But the movie's like sly joke is that he thinks he's the hero. He thinks he's this sort of John Wayne character, but his quote unquote sidekick is the competent one at every turn. Right. And, Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, the writer of this, um, Directed the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension. Yep. Another, another great, uh, another, another great cult film. Yep. Cult film. I mean, one thing I will say about this is, um, I am clearly a white man, so I cannot speak to this with any authority. I have seen people questioning this movie on racial grounds a little bit, but I also think that for the most part, what I've seen is well-meaning white people questioning it i think that Mm -hmm. it seems like and people can correct me if i'm wrong if i'm wrong but it seems like for the most part um asian people were happy that (laughs) there's this movie out there there's this big uh budget uh science fiction adventure that has like three white characters and otherwise is yeah, is is all Asian. So one of those white characters being an amazing Kim Cattrall playing yes. uh, Gracie Law, who I'm trying to remember the exact line, but her introduction is when she I don't know if it's her introduction even, but she has one of the best lines in the movie when she walks into a room, shuts the door and goes, don't worry, everyone. It's just me, Gracie Law. Like, it's so <laughs> wonderfully like the dialogue in it is all fun baloney like that. And what the last line of the movie, I remember being hilarious. Yeah, I, I, I want to, as long as we're just quoting parts of it, I want to, yeah. uh, shout out to the part where, 
uh, Kurt Russell and um, the other lead who I'm blanking on, but they want to brazen their way into the bad guy's lair and they do it. Their, their idea is they're going to pretend to be from the phone company. And the way they pretend to be from the phone company is Kurt Russell is just holding a rotary phone when he walks in <laughs> and bellowing about being from the phone company. Yes. Dennis Dunn is his, uh, plays, yes. plays Wang Chi. Yes. Yeah. Uh, this is, I mean, it's so good. James Hong, Victor Wong, like all these great actors. It's so good. It's such a good movie. And it's, I, I love John Carpenter movies in general. Like The Thing is a great cult movie. Escape mm-hmm. from New York is a great cult movie. Escape from LA is a movie he made. And <laughs> Big, Big Trouble in Little China, though, it sort of feels like, I think it's the, maybe one of the most accessible movies he's made. So I, obviously people didn't know what to do with it at the time, but I, I think I'd be hard pressed to find somebody now who doesn't like it or love it. Yeah, it's just very fun. It does fit very well the notion of a cult film because it's one of those that I think people slowly just introduced to each other. Yeah. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So I'm going to pitch a couple of things to you guys right now. One, I think we should round robin style pull one movie from one of the other people's list to go into the final three. But before we do that, I was talking to a friend of mine earlier and I mentioned to her what this episode was that we were doing. And her response was, oh, I hope that it isn't just three cisgendered straight white dudes uh, <laughs> recording this. And I said, uh, actually, it's going to be. Would you like to help us? And so here I have, thanks to my dear friend, uh, Haley Mancini, great television comedy writer and performer, and uh, two friends that she happened to have with her at the time, also accomplished comic people and television writers, and also very much involved in uh, geek culture. And that is AC Bradley and Allison Hayslip. So shout out to Haley, Allison, and AC for giving us this, uh, the Geek Girls list of cult movies. Awesome. I think we're going to pull one of each from each of us and one from this list. Uh, so let's collectively find ours on this list. And the list that she gave me is as follows. Tank Girl. Mm. Welcome to the Dollhouse. Mean Girls. Easy A. A slew of witch movies. Hocus Pocus. Practical Magic. The Craft. Craft, yeah. Uh, Hedwig and the Angry Inch. How Stella Got Her Groove Back. And uh, one that I nearly put on my list. Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion. Do any of those jump out at you? As, oh, this we've, we've initially as we've got to send this to the finals. I definitely have one that, that hits me. What do you think, Dan? I'll tell you what my favorite is, mm-hmm. uh, is probably Hedwig. I, I also love Easy A a lot. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's a very f- funny, underrated, underseen movie. Yeah. But I, I, I would probably throw my weight, weight behind Hedwig. Well, Hedwig was great too because it grew out of a cult stage show. And really, it wasn't the movie didn't create the cult, but boy, did the cult get bigger. Yeah. Uh, for John Cameron Mitchell and that, uh, and that film that I, I'm, I really love that movie as well. I also love Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion. Oh, so great. good. So um, and I think cult wise, it works because that is frequently seen costumes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the time after time dance at the end of that movie is, Completely iconic. With Alan Cumming, oh, right? With Alan Cumming. Yeah. The, excuse me, I cut my toe and my shoe is filling with blood. <laughs> uh, as one of the, one of the, uh, greatest ghosting lines ever. 
uh, not ghosting, but getting away from a dude in a club lines. I don't know. For me, it's between Romy and Michelle, and I would absolutely agree with you. Romy and Michelle and Hedwig and the Angry Inch, because that really does. I know people who were in that theater cult in New York and then expanded out when it became a movie. I, you know, I, it's funny. I was going to suggest taking two of these movies. Well, let's take them both. And what, no, well, not, uh, Romy and Michelle wasn't my second one. Mm-hmm. I think Hedwig is, is a very good one that, uh, that is definitely worthy of being a finalist. I, I'm happy giving that a buy to, to the finals. Mm-hmm. I think another one on this list, I love Welcome to the Dollhouse. I think it is a really smart, funny, clever, painful, sad, like it's sort of is that Todd Solondz? Did Todd Solondz make that movie? Yes. Yes. And Heather, Boy, Heather Matazaro's are... in it. I mean, it's maybe it's just for me. His movies are hard to watch. They like, are. Ugh. I mean, ha- I know. This is yeah. a step below uh, above this on the uncomfortability scale. Yeah. Uh, if that is a thing, but I think this one is just it, there's something about it that uh, when I was watching Eighth Grade, which I love, mm-hmm. and I don't think is the same movie at all. There's something about about how uncomfortable it was uh, mm-hmm. in a in a in the ways that I could identify with and ways that I couldn't that that made me think of Welcome to the Dollhouse. They both have that quality of it draws you in, but also you can't believe sort of what you're watching mm-hmm. and how terrible it is. But it also feels real, and it's one that I like. I, I don't I know. That's tough for me radar. because it's and this is I I I I can appreciate that movie. To me, that I don't know why his movies are like I can see them once. Yeah, I feel like it's important to see them, but I'm not having fun. Sure, you yeah, know what I, I mean. I would throw my weight. I think that Welcome to the Dollhouse is a very good movie. If we're specifically trying to uh, represent, you know, like uh, you know what what are looked on as quote like women's choices for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, by the way, I did tell them, I did tell them, I apologize for the fact that you're going to give us a list and then three cisgendered straight white dudes are going to pick the correct answer for yeah, that. Yeah, that was, that's what, that's where I was about to go. With. Yeah. Like, I, right. I, I, I realize that. I appreciate the irony of me about to be being like, well, I think that the more feminine, right, know, female <laughs> voice or whatever, I don't even know what, like, but like, I think that, um, Romy and Michelle focuses on female friendship in a way that you don't get in a lot of movies. Yeah. And um and that that's what gives it the edge for me, I guess. I'm fine with that. So we'll take the so those are two of our finalists, Hedwig right. and the Angry Inch and Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion. Hal, do you want to pull from Dan's? I'll pull from yours and Dan, you pull from mine? Sure. Great. Great. So so on your list Dan, I have The Phantom of the Paradise, Heather's Evil Dead 2, Return of the Living Dead, and Big Trouble in Little China. This is a very good list. And yeah. I'm kind of torn. I, I like what I like about Return of the Living Dead is the fact that it introduced tropes that we still use, which is zombies like brains and zombies are, can be fast. Um, but it's very hard for me to pick anything other than Big Trouble in Little China. Well, that would have been my, that's my top pick. So yeah. I, I'm happy with that. There we go. Uh, Dan. What do you, what do you, what are you taking off of my dinner plate? Or what do you, what do you, what do you stick in your fork in that's on my plate? Can you run them down for me again? Yeah. Plan nine from outer space, Rocky Horror Picture Show, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, The Room and The Princess Bride. You've got, um, this is a tough one because you've got a couple of the only ones that got seconds. Um, but I think I'm going to go 
with Rocky Horror Picture Show because I feel like that is, if you're talking cult movies, it's not necessarily the thing that started the cult, but it is the most iconic version and the of of a cult movie and the one that you can point to as having like actual like physical like look those people kept going to midnight shows kept it running you know like they're they are almost a literal cult right uh, yeah so i'm gonna go with that all right all right mark you're choosing between uh only three films because i already crossed off a clockwork orange and i know you're yeah. not picking it let's be real Days and Confused UHF and The Room. In the Room, yes. Do you think I'm gonna, do you think I'm not gonna pick the one that's also on my list? Uh, nope. The Room it is. <laughs> so here are our final choices. We have Big Trouble in Little China, The Rocky Horror Picture Show, The Room, Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion, and Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Thoughts, gentlemen. Do you want to go around and eliminate them one by one? We'll do just more. We'll just, we're just slashing at this point. Yeah. So slashing like it's a John Carpenter Dan, movie. Dan, you go first, then Mark, and then, and then I will go. Then we'll go around the horn. But, uh, before we do that, let's remember sort of what, what are we judging these five? These are five different, very different films from one another. No two of mm-hmm. them are alike. Maybe Rocky Horror and Hedwig in that they're both musicals. Even that they're, they're vastly different stories being told. What are our criteria? What are we looking for here? What, what tells us that we've got? The best. Is it, is it how it's lived, how it's lived on since? Is it how fanatical we think the fan base is? I think it's everything we talked about at the top. All right. Which is the, which is those things primarily. And, uh, and also it's so, it's funny. So little of it has to do right now with the quality of the movie. And as much as we've talked about it, true. It has to, a lot of it seems to have to do with the cult itself. Yeah. Uh, so wait, I'm cutting first. Yes. Oh boy. Um, <laughs> so it le- it leads to me uh, a man to uh I think cut first one of these choices um from the women you consulted mm-hmm. and I'm only doing that because I feel like whilst it is a very good movie and absolutely deserving of its cult uh Romy and Michelle seems less iconic to me than the other ones. All right. Yeah. Who's next? Uh, I'll go next. Okay. I'm going to cut the room. And the reason why is it's the only, uh, film on this list that I, that, uh, that I watch ironically. I don't watch it because it's good. I watch it because it's bad. And it yeah. lives on because it's so bad. And it would feel weird to have the great, of course, you know, Plan 9 didn't even make the finals. Another terrible movie. But you can always find something, I think, good in a cult movie that you, that you attach yourself to. And this one, I think we, we love. Because the, the people behind it seem insane. And, mm-hmm. uh, and it, it, it's a marvel that it exists. It's almost just sort of you watch it out of pure wonder that it exists rather than a perverse, like the pleasure is perverse rather than sort of right. straightforward. All right. It's mean spirited fun rather than earnest fun. Yeah. I'm laughing at, not with 100%. Yeah. All right. So I've got Big Trouble in Little China, Rocky Horror Picture Show, and Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Here's the thing, fellas. If you know me, you know that I, I love all three of these movies. Mm-hmm. And Dan, you have my apologies. But if you know me, you know I'm a big musicals fan. Mm-hmm. And I can sing. I know most of the lyrics to most of Rocky Horror Picture Show and Hedwig and the Angry Inch. So for purely personal reasons... uh. I'm going to eliminate Big Trouble in Little China. All right. 
Now, and I realize we said this after saying, here are the reasons we're going to eliminate things. Mm-hmm. And then I do the complete opposite. But I do think, <laughs> <laughs> I do think that, look, I, I, I don't think there's going to be any surprise, uh, that to any of our listeners that I'm, I'm, I want to bring two musicals to the finals. That, look, there's nearly 500 hours of me podcasting out there. And that's before you even add in guesting on lovely shows like yours. So, and oh, I think thanks. that I've spent, a fair amount of it talking about Big Trouble in Little China. So I've done my work. <laughs> fair enough. I've had before the people. So, um, okay. So, well, between Hedvig and uh, Rocky Horror, um, I think it's more for me at that point about which represents cult movies the best rather than like the loser of those two being a bad movie in any way. Sure. Right. And so I would have to go with Rocky Horror. All right. Yeah. That is, uh, that is an unsu- un, uh, unsurprising ending to, uh, a, <laughs> a discussion of a lot of really, really great cult movies. Yeah. Look, people of the world, sometimes we embark on a trip that's really just a walk around the block, <laughs> but we take our time. We smell the flowers. We look at the trees. We admire and gawk at people's mm-hmm. yards. We waste all of your time. We waste exactly. your time. Exactly. You look. We're not wasting your time. We're talking about fun movies. And yeah. you know right, what? Right. Do you know how many people are going to go see The Phantom of the Paradise now? I know two. <laughs> well, one. I, <laughs> well, I, <laughs> shut up, Hal. We passed the time. How about that? We passed the time. <laughs> That's right. We're, we're here. Exactly. Here with you. It should be no surprise that the greatest uh, cult classic film of all time is the Rocky Horror Picture Show. It, it has never been anything but a cult classic. I feel like they're, like, even if you attempt to bring it mainstream, it is almost impossible. And Hedwig in the An- Angry Inch, as great a film as it is, I think of it as a Broadway experience and a theater experience more than mm-hmm. I think of it as a film just to sort of add on to, uh, you know, add on to what you're saying, as great as it is. So there you have it. It's asked and answered for all time when you are asked what the greatest cult classic film is. You say Rocky Horror Picture Show and walk around the block if you want to. I don't know. Yeah. You live Do the life. time warp. Yeah. Do the time work. Yeah. Do the time work. Do the time work. That's my uh, version that I wrote in China. That's a huge hit over there. Can't sue me. Good luck trying. Dan McCoy, thank you for joining us. Thank, thank you, you so for much, Dan. Me. Yes. Uh, I'm going to get you back on here. I know we talked about other topics and you were like, I don't want to do Marx Brothers because I can't choose, mm-hmm. which makes me feel at some point we should have you back on to talk about the Marx Brothers. <laughs> well, <laughs> Just yeah. throw it really out there. Me pain. That could be entertaining. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but um, the, well, do you have anything you want to promote? Yeah. Uh, you know, um, I have a Twitter that my co-host Elliot Kalen hates, and so <laughs> if you all want to <laughs> spite him. You can follow me at Dan K McCoy at, uh, and that there's no way to say that other than Dank McCoy, even though it's just the fact that K is my middle initial. <laughs> sure. And also on the Max Fun Network, listen to. My show, if you so choose. Um, if you didn't like me, the other guys are funnier. Uh, it's called The Flop House. We talk about bad movies. But the difference between us and all those other bad movie podcasts is, I don't know, we were here earlier? <laughs> Perfect. You've been doing it for a while. Yeah. yeah. The difference and, is uh, And if you go see it, go see it at, uh, at Hinterland's Bar with your co-host. Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, everybody should be. I, I can't imagine there are many people who listen to us who don't listen to The Flop House. But if you don't, you absolutely should. I mean, come on. We know you love movies. You're suggesting topics like this. Get out of here with it. 
Right? Jeez. Well, this topic is closed, but there are many more topics to discuss, so please reach out to us on Twitter at We Got This Tweets. Check out the Maximum Fun subreddit, or you can email us at We Got This Podcast at gmail.com or go to Facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash We Got This Podcast. What are your favorite cult classic movies? Do you like the time work? Have you heard that one? <laughs> it's on TikTok. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, Boo. Thank you to producer Ken Plume, researcher Kate McManus, graphic designer Eric Hellman, and QA engineer Jen Alba. And thanks to our musicians, Jonathan Dinerstein and Mike Furman, for our score and theme song, respectively. And thanks to you, our listeners, for giving us a chance to sit down with Dan and talk about great cult classic movies. Every time we think of, of making you a new episode, we shiver with anticipation. For Hal Loveland, I'm Mark Agliardi. For Mark Agliardi, I'm Hal Loveland, and don't worry, everybody. We got this. We got this. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned, audience supported.